Hello and welcome to The Doc Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mike DeLuke, and it's my mission to help you lead a happier, healthier, and more prosperous life, both personally and professionally. Hello and welcome to this edition of The Doc Podcast. I'm super excited to have Dr. Eric Plumis with me for today's episode. Dr. Plumis is an attorney with the firm of Rivkin Radler, an orthodontist and an adjunct clinical professor of orthodontics at New York University. He maintains a private practice in law and orthodontics in New York City. He limits his legal practice to business and transactional issues related to the practice of dentistry, including practice transitions, partnership and employment agreements, office leases, and the defense of allegations of professional misconduct. He also lectures nationally on the topic of legal issues facing dentists and orthodontists. On a personal note, I got to know Eric about 15 years ago when we were both serving on the New York State Society of Orthodontists Executive Board, and I've always really enjoyed speaking with and learning from him. In today's podcast, we're going to be discussing some of the legal issues dentists and orthodontists face in private practice, including the standard of care, CBCT imaging, airway orthodontics, informed consent, refusing to treat or dismissing a patient, and liability exposure in partnerships. So with that, I would like to welcome Dr. Eric Plumis to the podcast. Welcome, Eric. And Mike, thank you for having me. I look forward to sharing what I can share with you and your clients in the next few minutes. Awesome. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. Um, one of the things I'm really looking forward to about this is just being able to explore these topics in a little more detail. Uh, I find it so nice to do this in a conversational format. That's why I'm loving the podcasting arena. Lectures are great and you give great lectures. I've been to multiple of them, both webinar-based and in person. Uh, the challenge with a lecture, and I have people say the same thing to me when I present, there's not a lot of time for follow-up and in intera an interactive format. I mean, you can ask questions at the end, but it's a little different than having that back and forth. Uh, and I'm going to try to represent my viewers and the people who are consuming the podcast and, and ask the questions of you in a conversational format that so many people ask, as we know, in, in our profession. So, so I'm really looking forward to that. All right. Terrific. I'm ready for you. <laughs> All right. And before I go, I just want to make it clear that this podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not intended to represent legal advice or advice specific to one person or group of persons. If you have any specific legal questions, you must consult your own attorney for those matters. So with that, I think a way to jump into it is, is kind of a, a hot topic. It's one that is often discussed and I feel really often misunderstood. Uh, I actually learned a lot about it, maybe maybe not so ironically, but ironically from you uh, attending one of your, your courses years ago, uh, and that's the standard of care. Uh, I, I feel that people misclassify and aren't often clear on what the sort of standard of care is. I feel it's often used as something um, to misrepresent what really should be done and, and therefore is misunderstood. So Let's maybe start, if you could, by just explaining the legal definition of standard of care and, and what we should know about it in general terms. Mike, why don't we start with what the standard of care is not, and then we'll define what the standard of care is. Great. What the standard of care is not is what you were taught in your residency by your instructor, what you hear at an AAO lecture, in Bill Prophet's textbook, what you read in the AJO 
journal. That is not the standard of care. Those are clinical guidelines. Those are one person's belief in research or uh, clinical techniques. Mm -hmm. That does not define the standard of care. Okay. What the standard of care is, is what a reasonably prudent orthodontist would do in the same or similar circumstances. A very broad, amorphous definition that's proven and defined only in a malpractice trial. The judge and the jury, the trier of fact, says, we think this is what a reasonably prudent orthodontist would have done in the same or similar circumstances. Very hazy, very fuzzy, defined, unfortunately, under the crucible of a malpractice trial, but not by any speaker, textbook, journal, instructor. Interesting. That That is... Again, I think probably if you surveyed 100 orthodontists or 100 dentists, I, I think probably 90% would, would get that wrong. And maybe the only ones that would really know it are the ones who either had just taken a course in that or had just experienced, unfortunately, that that circumstance themselves. So um, just took their boards because that's <laughs> always a board question. Every year, my residents at NYU say, Dr. Plumas, what is the standard of care? And they give you the choices, what you learned in school, the clinical practice guidelines, judge and jury decision. And it's always a board question. So for at least one year, every orthodontist knows that. Knows that. Yeah. One of the ones that you, you then memorize. And then uh, as you get out there, um, yep. it, it slips out, but it's so important. And um, the reason I wanted to start with this is I think it kind of serves as the focus and the nucleus of everything that we do in practice. Cause so many decisions are made. You hear so many people say, well, it's not in line with the standard of care. It is in line with the standard of care. Um, and whether that's some you know, things we're going to be talking about, cone beam and airway and so forth. But why don't we start first kind of in the, the, the sequential fashion that I want to go, which is clinical exam, initial diagnostics. In light of the conversation of standard of care, what pre and post treatment records does an orthodontist need to take? I'm going to go back to the definition of standard of care, which I tell every dentist that attends my lectures to have two things in their drawer. Definition of the practice of dentistry in their state, which is consistent in all 50 states, and the definition of the standard of care. And that's going to always answer your question, what records should I take? What records would a reasonably prudent colleague take under the same or similar circumstances? That may be for an Invisalign irregular anterior alignment case much different than a surgical case. You mm -hmm. probably wouldn't take an AP Ceph. You may not even need to take a Ceph. You probably wouldn't take a cone beam for a simple Invisalign case. Standard of care, what the reasonably prudent doctor would do in the same or similar circumstances, wouldn't put, let's say, that ionizing burden on a patient for a simple anterior alignment Invisalign. Mm -hmm. Big surgical case, you take cone beams, you take AP Ceph, you take sagittal Cephs, different definition. If you look at the AAO clinical practice guidelines, mm -hmm. that text says clearly, these are the recommended records that we think in a good clinical practice you should take. And then they go on to say, however, these are not the standard of care. Mm -hmm. These are suggestions that our best experts feel in these circumstances are what you should take to diagnose and treatment plan your patient. So the short answer is, if you were having to defend your case before a judge and jury, mm -hmm. 
and they brought in an expert, what would that expert as a reasonably prudent orthodontist say you should have taken? Understood. Okay. That's great. And, um, I think that really clarifies it because I've heard people say, well, the AAO recommends this as the standard of care. And no, they and, never say the right. word standard of care. They say, this is what we think are the clinical best practices, but they absolutely in the ADA and the AAO and every specialty board's clinical practice guidelines, they very clearly say, this is not the standard of care. It's That's merely right. a recommendation. A recommendation and a, and a guideline and that's so important because that is often in online study groups and in conversations wildly misunderstood and misrepresented uh, by by colleagues uh with that when you start talking about getting a little more granular with it with with what records we're going to take and you start start talking about that judgment call which is sounds like is up to the individual clinician to make that decision uh in line with what a comparable peer would do in a similar situation what do you feel about those who say you do need to take models you don't need to take models you need stone models you need digital models you could use a cone beam instead of a model you can take a 3d scan for the pictures and replace the pictures that more nuanced discussion what do you say about that look as an orthodontist i get what we need to take as a lawyer i know what we need to take to practice defensively so mm -hmm. unless there is a reason that isn't in the patient's best interest. For example, taking a cone beam on a seven-year-old for the initial consultation as a risk management tool is not ethical. The ionizing burden offsets the information you're going to gain. But short of that, as an orthodontist, I would always default to the greater number of records. I think study casts, rarely does a case fail on study casts, but you are in the cross-examination being asked, why didn't you take study models? Wouldn't that have helped you? Wouldn't a reasonably prudent person take study models? Now, whether they need to be plaster and archived, an itero scan, recreated from a cone beam, that's up to you. As long as if you need those models, you can produce them. Uh, should you take a pan on every patient? I would say yes. Should you take photos? There's no risk to the patient to taking photos and there's a huge benefit to you. I would say yes. Should you take a CEPH if there's any skeletal involvement or a growing patient? I would say yes. Uh, a sagittal CEPH. Should you take an AP CEPH if you have a facial asymmetry? Yes. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'm going to let you get to it, but should you take a cone beam? I'll wait for you to prompt me for that. Yeah. But depending on the circumstance, I think a cone beam is the standard of care. And we'll touch on that, I presume, a little later, Mike. Yeah, we're going to get into that part. One thing I do want to just kind of push back on a little bit on the on the cone beam is there are now cone beam machines which is the one i used in my practice for which deliver less radiation the low dose ones than a combined not than a, just a pan alone a pan well, actually no i take that back the cone there are cone beams that deliver less than even a pan now they effective dose maybe 15 ish microsievert depending on the field of view on a on a pediatric patient say a seven-year-old uh pan and CEPH combined being more that like 30-ish. So you can get 30, 35, you know, if a pan is 20, maybe 25 for a good digital pan microsieverts and a CEPH is like five to 10. So that I think is another point of confusion in our profession. And I, I've, I've often heard people, you know, when I talk about taking a cone beam on young kids, they're like, you're, you're over radiating them. I'm like, well, actually, I always tell the story of when I had a, uh, the, the radiology tech come into my office. When I first installed my cone beam in 2014, and the tech 
uh, came in and I'm in the clinic and he's back in the records room. And one of my clinicians comes in and says, Dr. Mike, you know, um, the guy's in there and he's saying like, the machine's not working. I'm like, machine's not working. I just had it installed. And he comes, I come in and I'm like, John, what's going on? He's like, I can't get a reading. Well, he was doing it on the low setting. Now, I know many orthodontists who have that machine who didn't take it on the lowest setting and didn't use in this particular software. It was a separate, you know, icon you had to select, took it on the full. And now you're talking 50 microsieverts. Now you're talking significantly more ionizing radiation. But I think there's such a that, that and that's something I actually love to just hear your input on, like what happens in a trial when I'm up there, right? And I take this and I can prove I have the the dosage indications from the manufacturer and from the person who um, certified my machine and licensed my machine saying this is lower than what a pan would be. How does that shake out when someone comes up and says, no, I mean, do they actually go to the company? Because you can send, I was using an iCAD, again, I'm not promoting iCAD, but I was using an iCAD. You can send that scan. It's it's It has a digital imprint and, and it will you can send it to them and they can analyze the number of microsieverts in the ionizing dose that was delivered. So is that what would happen if I said, no, look, you know, let's say the prosecuting attorney was saying, you took a, ra a radiograph that was excessive radiation for that age group. And I said, actually, I took a radiograph that was less radiation and gave me more information. How does that, how is that shaking out? Because I think that's kind of a big thing that, that's coming down the pike as this is all evolving with this, with Combeam. Let me flip that on its head. You never lose a malpractice trial because you took a pan uh, or a Ceph or a um, Combeam. Mm -hmm. You lose one because you should have taken one. Now, the machines and the technology, as you point out, have improved greatly to the point where with a little bit less defined. So with lower microserverts comes a little bit less definition. Right, true. But, so you're you're getting more of a um, snapshot than a pi-res image. Correct. And it's directly correlated the amount of rads you give, the amount of, of definition you get, yep. but you never lose for taking one. Yep. So okay. the only way what you're talking about would be an issue is if the patient said they got cancer from the cone beam. Right, right. So yes. It's never an okay. issue with the number of microserverts. It's that you should have taken one and you didn't. Impacted canine, okay. impacted two, sinus involvement, missed a tad that you placed in there. So not taking one is a problem. I would say taking one is never a problem unless you use high dosage on an unnecessary a defensive radiograph. But that's never a malpractice case that you took a cone beam when you shouldn't have. It's that you didn't take one when you should have. God. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for clarifying that. And uh, like I said, I'm part of this. I'm so excited for this podcast is I I learning as a, with this because it's just uh, I think there's so many things out there that we all talk about in our in our own arenas and we don't know. We're all just as as practitioners, we're all kind of guessing and we're all doing the best we can, which I get. But it's great to have the legal knowledge that you bring to say, hey, look, this is what what's actually going on when when push comes to shove. So since we're kind of talking cone beams, let's just stay there. Um, how how does that shake out? Like you, you you're just starting to say, you know, it's not that you're going to be losing a lawsuit because you took one. Where is that line? You know, so uh, can you give maybe an example of a case where a doc maybe on each side, like should have taken one and didn't and had liability exposure um, and then took one and missed some of the data that it had in it and didn't perform a thorough enough diagnosis and how that really plays out in the legal system. All right, let's break it up into two parts, each of your questions. Let's start with the second one first. You took one and you missed something. 
Yeah. Okay. So the problem is you take it, you own it, you own the entire image. Okay. So you're looking at an uninterrupted lower left second premolar. Mm -hmm. That's what you want to see. And you miss a lesion on the pituitary gland, but it showed up on that cone beam. Mm -hmm. That's on you, mm -hmm. which is why the AAO, if you look at the clinical practice guidelines, mm -hmm. I have, yep. recommends yep. have it read by a radiologist. And yep. uh, you know, we're not going to go into the language today, but it clearly states very often the images are beyond that which we as orthodontists are trained to interpret. Therefore, it is advisable to send all images to a radiologist. Now, that mm -hmm. doesn't give you a get out of jail free, just like sending a patient to a periodontist for a screening and you still treat, even though they, they say treat and you know there's active perio, that doesn't mean you can put your head in the sand and say, I got clearance. Mm -hmm. yeah. But having a radiologist read that image is what is recommended. And one step further, if you look at one of our newer specialties, the oral and maxillofacial radiologist, one mm -hmm. of the newest ADA approved specialties, they clearly say, we are here to read these images. Mm -hmm. If you miss it, you're going to be held to the same standard as we are. Mm -hmm. So the first thing is, if you take it, you can't limit and just say, I only wanted to see where that lateral root is in relation to the canine. Anything mm -hmm. on that image is yours. Now, to your point about lower radiation and ionizing burden, the machines have now, in response to this concern, allowed you to collimate way down mm -hmm. and look at what you're interested in. Endodontists only want to look at the root. They don't want to look at the entire sinus and the and the wrong jaw sure. more than we necessarily want to look at everything if we're taking it for a specific reason. If it's a scout cone beam, that's different. If we want to see the overall oral health of the patient, mm -hmm. we want to take a broad image. But if we're only looking at impacted canine or uh, uninterrupted second premolar, we want to collimate down, use the lowest ionizing burden. So that's to answer your one question about what you're responsible for in the image, everything. Yeah, which okay. is why you should always have a radiologist read it. Now, there is going to come a day, and I see it with our residents, that these students are going to graduate from school and be able to interpret their own cone beams. Right. Uh, just like, I was going to ask uh, you about like that. Yeah. I'm a little older than you, but when panorexes first came in, you would take a week-long course in order to interpret a panorex. And right. now it's laughable. Kids get out of dental school, and the panorex is just like a periapical. It's just a ho-hum, I'll look at it and interpret it. Yep. But that was the cone beam of its day. Cone beams now, as the residents and students percolate through the system, there's going to be a day where they're comfortable reading them. I don't think we're there yet. I think we should still send them to a radiologist. If you do it in volume, you could get it read for 50 or $75 an image. Now, you know, people say, well, I can't pass that along to the patients. I have patients with insurance. They won't pay for it. That's a problem. Because <laughs> right. if they don't want to pay for it, there is no waiver you can get from the patient that says, you don't want to pay for it. I'll interpret it myself and I'll do my best. And if I miss something, you're going to hold me not, not responsible. I'm not liable for missing it. Courts do not honor a disclaimer for something that didn't meet the standard of care. Uh, your second question is, when should you take it? And that is, Back to the standard of care, when a reasonably prudent practitioner under the same or similar circumstances would have taken it. So you have root resorption. You bury a tad in the sinus that the cone beam would have revealed. 
you miss a supernumerary that the cone beam would have revealed. Uh, mm -hmm. Recently, I was an expert on a case where the oral surgeon got the cone beam, was given a list by the dentist on which teeth to extract, was told specifically extract a supernumerary in the position of the upper right lateral and mistakenly extracted the upper right lateral and left the supernum. Oof. So it's a problem, but you're always going to find an expert that's going to say, if you had taken the cone beam, you wouldn't have missed this. You would have diagnosed this. So mm -hmm. to err on the side of taking it, I think is the safest. You forget about the diagnostic benefits of it from a risk mm -hmm. management point of view. Better to have it than wish you had it. I, it, it's again, it's great hearing you say that because I completely agree on the, and when I lecture on this and talk about cone beam and teach residents on this, I explain that the burden is on you to diagnose everything in that image. And I think where we get into trouble a lot of times is we take it and we don't take the time to go understand nasal passageways, turbinate, turbinate anatomy, uh, oropharyngeal airway, anatomy, yes, airway, yeah. all of that. When you're looking at that sinus cavity size and, and, and morphology. Um, and so when I went to uh, Ty Ramsey on a, a while back, um, who was the sales rep I dealt with when I got my machine. And, and Ty was like, I think I literally was Ty's worst nightmare when, when I was looking into getting this machine, because I was obsessed with trying to figure out how I could learn how to diagnose these images and diagnose them appropriately. So what I ended up doing was I went to my ENTs, allergists and my community and picked their brains. And I said, hey, look, I'm seeing this, these adenoids, does this qualify for adenoid enlargement in your mind? Would you want me to refer this patient to you? Talking to the allergists and I have a personal side of, of having multiple sinus surgeries in, in my thirties. So I, I was fascinated with that area of, of um, the, the craniofacial anatomy anyway. So I would just kind of pick their brains like, hey, what is this? What is that showing them images? And to your exact point, once you've seen enough of them, I mean, we're all fairly intelligent individuals. We all understand the anatomy of the head and neck. Uh, once you've seen enough of them and you understand what you're looking at and you understand what is normal or what is outside of those that range, and then understand that you need to refer it and have it read professionally or make the referral to an oral surgery colleague or whatever the case might be, I found that it was pretty easy for me to parse that out. I would look at an image. I Again, in my lectures, I show some examples where there was just one case where a frontal sinus was just huge. It was just huge. I mean, it was it was this cavernous frontal sinus. And I looked at it and I'm like, that's not a normal frontal sinus. That needs to be read. And it came back, it was fine. It came back, it was just a you know, typical uh, abnormally large frontal sinus. But I was able, I, every single, the important part is, and I, I emphasize this all the time when I teach this, you have to look through the entire image if you're going to take a cone beam. You have to go through, literally, I call it my airway tour. You have to look at the sinuses. You have to go through uh, slices from front to back in a coronal slice. You have to go through your sagittals left to right. You have to look through it. You can get it down to where it doesn't take that long to do at all, you know, minutes, but you have to do that. So it's great to hear you say, yeah, look, the burden's on you to see all of that and educate yourself. And I do think once we start Sadly, a lot of residencies aren't even taking cone beams or teaching cone beams. Um, but I think once it becomes more commonly taught and the residents become coming up become more aware of it and it's just more comfortable for them, they will be able to do that. And I think it's great to make the point, if you're not comfortable with that, then you need to have it read <laughs> by a third party because you're going to miss something. And the other side of that, to your other point, what about 
the cases, because I show this when I lecture too, where there was a supernumerary or let's actually instead of a supernumerary, what about a case where a third molar, and I have a few of these I show, is obstructing the eruption of a second molar, but the 2D image does not show it. But because you took the 3D, again, the importance of looking through every single part of that image, because if you don't look closely at the 3D, you would have missed it as well. You look at the 3D and you're like, oh my gosh, there's like a cap of a crown of a developing third molar blocking the distal half of the eruption. And in the 2D, it looked like it was kind of wrapped around the back. So it just looked like this sort of maybe a little more opaque second molar would have never, when I put it up for residents, when I teach, I've never once had anybody in two of these images in particular, see it looking at the 2D. What happens there? And then all of a sudden there's a problem or that tooth doesn't erupt and you don't take another pan. Let's say you put the patient on observation, they're nine uh, and you put on observation and you don't see them back for a few years. And then all of a sudden now you have a major problem uh, in that location. What, what happens there? Well, first off, you're not responsible to know everything on that cone beam. What you're responsible to know is something doesn't make sense to you and you need to have it looked at. So we're not supposed to be okay. radiologists. We don't, we're not expected to look at it perhaps with the skill that you now have from having studied it so much. All we need to know is just like a suspicious lesion in the mouth. I mean, mm -hmm. as an orthodontist, we don't see pathology, but when you see something unusual in the mouth, okay. you don't say you have such and such papilloma, you say, let's get you to a pathologist. Got it. So you see something unusual, it's fine. You met the standard of care by seeing it and referring it. Okay. But to your, and that image you're describing is making the rounds. It's so funny you say that because I've been at a couple of lectures in the last month where that third molar obscuring the second molar image has been brought up repeatedly. Oh, isn't that interesting? I didn't know that. That's cool. So to the point where I've been to those lectures so much, I raise my hand and say, it's the third molar. <laughs> <laughs> the speaker's thunder. Uh, you're going to find an expert who's going to say, if you'd taken a cone beam, you would have known that. So okay. you didn't meet the standard of care. That's the problem is there's always going to be somebody, whether it's a hired gun or a colleague who really thinks you screwed up, mm -hmm. who's going to be on the other side of that stand from you saying, doctor, if you had spent that extra 50 bucks to take a cone beam and had it read, you would have seen this image and saved the patient, whatever this huge world of hurt they're alleging mm -hmm. is. So you when you miss it, it's on you and that's the problem. And that's why, unfortunately, we have to practice defensively to some mm -hmm. degree, uh, arguably more than we should, more than the patient's benefit. Mm -hmm. But when you're sitting on that stand, and I've been an expert witness in a number of trials, you wish you had done it. Mm -hmm. You thought at the time, I didn't think it was indicated. I didn't think the cost justified the procedure and yeah. that does factor into the standard of care cost does so people okay. are under this misconception that regardless of the cost you have to spend it to meet the standard of care but among the factors that go into the standard of care is the cost of the procedure a prohibitively expensive test that yields very little positive information in most cases is it's okay not to do that you have still met the standard of care but okay. you now is so cheap that it's hard to say you shouldn't have taken one if it would have revealed some pathology. And it sounds kind of like it's, this is still evolving a little bit too, right? Absolutely. As we're, yes. as we're, I mean, it's, it's completely it's... evolving. Any technology we use always outpaces the ability of the law to regulate it. And mm -hmm. some of us end up, uh, you know, the joke is like the pioneers, you can tell the pioneers because they're the ones with the arrows in their back. 
<laughs> paved the way for the rest of us. So like that. one of these big court cases comes up and we all go, oh my goodness, and now we know what the standard of care is. Thank you for clearing that up because um, it's, and, and sometimes I think just people knowing that it's still developing and knowing where, what, what the guardrails are and kind of knowing where to go within those in their own comfort zone and being able to defend that is a lot at this point just to help help put people's mind at ease regarding regarding what they're doing and to finish that part up my understanding too is that the aao can't and won't make recommendations on that because it's just not in their purview to be legislating on like you said before standard of care so when we go to the AO website and they don't say they're recommending a comb beam it doesn't mean that the aao is essentially saying we don't see a value in comb beam it's just saying they are not going to stand on that legal hill and say this is what you should be doing for all your patients because then the converse of that is anyone who's not now is technically completely hung out to dry right yes yes and i would encourage everyone who's listening to go to the aao website it is rich with information nothing i've told you is new nothing i've told you i've made up taking it from court cases i've analyzed and from studying the aao clinical guidelines over and over this is what they say now they do throw you us under the bus a little bit by recommending that we have the cone beam read by a radiologist AAOIC and AAO is pretty clear that their recommendation is to have the cone beam read. But as far as what records to take, they will list records that they think should be taken depending on the circumstance. And they'll specifically say it's up to the clinical judgment of each practitioner. Now, clinical guidelines specifically say these are not standards of care, but you can bet they're going to be thrown at you mm -hmm. in a malpractice trial. Yep. So you, you really... You should take advantage of the resource that those clinical practice guidelines offer and read them. It's not fun reading compared to other things, but to practice more safely, it would be good for every orthodontist to go on the website and read those clinical practice guidelines. Great. Um, staying on, uh, kind of get, get through the the, the real uh, more controversial topics up, up front here. Um, airway. So it ties into cone beam. Um, I, th I think most people are aware, and I make it very clear when, when I speak about this, that orthodontists, dentists cannot diagnose sleep apnea. Uh, we can't put a diagnosis that has to, that diagnosis has to come from a physician. Where I think it gets tricky is I am one that believes that the orthodontist can recognize symptoms of sleep disordered breathing. In other words, right? long face, vertical grower, chapped gums, I call them, the chapped lips, uh, allergic shiners, um, Denny Morgan lines, all of these things, crowding, narrowing of the arches in the anterior middle thirds, all of these things that lead us to say, maybe this kid is a mouth breather. Maybe I mean, we've been dealing with mouth, but you look back through our literature to the early 1900s, we understood that the way we breathe, the, the way we bring in air should be through our noses and if it's not, and we're breathing through our mouths, it changes the way the face grows. So I've always said, no, you don't tell a parent or a patient that the child has sleep apnea. However, if you see a seven-year-old, six-year-old kid come in and they've got some of these other things going on, it is your responsibility to ask the parent, are they a mouth breather? Do they snore? Are they a restless sleeper? And then with that, you make the appropriate referral to your medical colleagues, otolaryngologist, if it's something to do um, with the lymphoid tissue, allergist if, if you have a cone beam again you can see this in the nasal passageways and, and obstruction of the nasal passageways 
uh, allergic shiners, even some of those more clinical symptoms you don't need to see radiographically, you can see those and say, maybe you should go see an allergist. Mom says, kid's always stuffy. He's always got, you know, he's, he's always sniffling and, and wiping his nose. And so all of those things, I feel the orthodontist has a responsibility instead of just looking at the teeth, which is what sadly we're so often taught. We really need to look at the whole patient in that way. But other people say you're overstepping. You're, you're crossing your line. That's not your job. That's the physician's job. And in the middle of this, we have a patient who is suffering. And the pediatricians, as many of us know who have kids, who have had kids recently, the pediatricians are very busy and they're not exactly taking the time to look at the child in the way that they probably should many times. I'm not indicting all pediatricians. I'm just saying many people can relate to the fact that their child doesn't exactly get the most thorough workup at their annual visit. So with that, what does the law say? What, where does it fall? Is it just that if the orthodontist feels educated enough on it, then they can go down that road? Um, and we'll come to the treatment side in a minute. I, I just, for now, just kind of on the diagnostic side, what, what do you say about that? You know, we started this lecture with me saying there are two things every dentist should have in their drawer. Mm -hmm. Definition of the standard of care, definition of the practice of dentistry in your state. Every state's definition is similar, not identical, but similar. I've looked at all 50 and they all say our job as a dentist is to diagnose and treat diseases, deformities of the oral and maxillofacial cavity. Mm -hmm. So this is our turf mm -hmm. from here to there. Mm -hmm. And tonsils, airway, they're part of the oral and maxillofacial cavity. Now, legally, we also are not allowed to be physicians. We're mm -hmm. dentists, so we can't diagnose sleep apnea, mm -hmm. but under a physician's orders, we can treat sleep apnea. Mm -hmm. So we do have a duty if we see an airway obstruction, long face, lip incompetence, mouth breathing, to say your child should get a consultation with an allergist or um, an endocrinologist in some mm -hmm. cases. You know, it's a little trickier if we're talking about um, a lesion on the cheek that you think is a basal cell carcinoma, do we have a duty to refer? And I would say, yes, our mm -hmm. license says diseases of the oral and maxillofacial cavity. Now we're not going to treat carcinoma of mm -hmm. the stem, but we're going to observe it and say, you should get this checked. We recognize an airway problem. You should get this checked. Your cone beam reveals, or even your CEPH reveals mm -hmm. large adenoids. You should get it checked. And it is not only our duty to tell the patient, our legal duty to tell the patient they should get a check. But we also have a further obligation to tell them what happens if they don't get it checked. Mm -hmm. So yep. that's an added complication. That's not informed consent, that's informed refusal. Mrs. Jones, your son is a mouth breather, long face syndrome. We think there's some pathology here. Please have it checked by your ENT or your pediatrician. And if you don't, these are the things that could happen. So it's more than just diagnosing or suggesting they go for a diagnosis. It's saying what happens if you don't. Great. And, and that is, um, I think something, you know, I'm learning as I do this always, every time I speak to you about this stuff, I learn something, and maybe it's something you told me before. <laughs> I didn't remember. And after a couple of times it, it'll set, it'll set in, but, um, that full, full information, giving the full information, um, from a consent and a refusal standpoint to your patients, I think is something that 
gets a lot of us in a lot of trouble. I think uh, a lot of us gloss over a lot of that, and we'll kind of come to this more in, in, in a couple of minutes. But um, I think that's something where a lot of a lot of orthodontists get themselves down a tough path is is over delegating the diagnostic part of everything. Uh, would you agree that that tends to be a problem in our profession? I think it is, particularly for example, with Invisalign. You know, I accept which many general dentists do. They just think, well, they've done the diagnosis and treatment plan for me. I'll just click the button. They'll send me the aligners. Mm -hmm. Delegate. We're busy. We look at the bottom line. Uh, the other problem is sometimes we are very thorough, but we don't write it down. Mm -hmm. Don't write down. We told the mother to go. We don't write down. We told mm -hmm. the father that if you don't go, this is what might happen. You clearly remember you did. There's some negative sequela. You remember you did. The patient never remembers you doing mm -hmm. it. So yep. it's, it's not just doing it, it's memorializing it. Does that have to be in a letter that's written to, uh, let's say you didn't, I mean, I believe, and I always did, you know, if you're going to make the referral, you send the letter whether they're going or not. Like we would, I would send the letter to the ENT, I would send the letter to the allergist, the oral surgeon, whatever. If they didn't go, um, that's on them. Um, we also would document it thoroughly in the chart. I know some people feel you should actually put that in writing in a letter you send to the patient and or parent as well. Is that necessary to send that letter or is just documenting it in the treatment chart that the conversation was had sufficient? You know, risk management is a ladder. The higher you climb, the safer you are. Mm -hmm. So you know, there's there's a point where it's diminishing return. Mm -hmm. If you see something, you know, if you're talking about uh, puffy gums and maybe the kid should go get a cleaning, I don't think you need to go overboard. But if mm -hmm. you're seeing some suspicious cancerous lesion or true obstructive obstructive sleep apnea, should CC the parent, send it to the pediatrician or the ENT. Mm -hmm and follow up. The problem mm -hmm. is we often say we sent it once and we don't then tell the patient, did you go? Yep. And you should obviously write it in the chart as well. It's it's a burden, but that's the burden we accept for the privilege of practicing. This is what patients expect. Now, can you delegate some of that? Yes, you can tell your staff, send a letter to the ENT that we always send. You don't have mm -hmm. to handwrite the letter yourself. You can mm -hmm. have merge codes, you can streamline it, mm -hmm. but. The more you do, the safer your practice. In every malpractice case, I hear the same thing. This is the one time I didn't do it. Now, you know darn well, <laughs> they never do it. But the answer is, this is the one time I didn't retake the PAM. This is the yep. one time I didn't send the letter. This is the one time I didn't do a follow-up call. And now I'm getting in trouble for it. You've got you to make these things be habitual and easy to do. And most software systems make it easy to do. Yeah, agreed. You just have to do it and you have to have the discipline to do it. And it's okay to delegate, Mike. It's okay to say to a staff member, I want you to get this letter out, put it on my desk. You review it, but you get a good staff member that makes sure it gets done. And, and as a aside on this, um, I would always make sure I didn't have any pre-signed letters at all. I would, I had, it was all digital, but I would put my digital signature on it. Uh, no one else in my practice had that digital signature. You could say, Mike, could they have copied it and put it aside? And yes, but at the same time, someone could forge your signature too. I mean, I, I think there's some things that that if someone's going to try to find a way around, but I did not pre-sign those letters because I didn't want to risk that my TC who ex went through the exact workflow you described, they queued the letter, they prepped the letter, they got it ready for me, but I reviewed every single letter before I put my signature on it because I wanted to make sure that something wasn't missed. Again, I feel that's where a lot of us get in trouble is we rush over those things. See, think of it as minutia, 
think of it as just boring and tiring. It is. It's not fun at the end of a long day to have to go into your letter queue and look through mm -hmm. 15, 20 letters in a busy practice yep. of all these things you're sending. And then stick your digital signature on, batch them, hit email, and send them off. But to me, like you said, that's part of the burden that we accept when we do this. And it's amazing when you look at those letters at the end of the day, how errors creep in. You don't oh, know. Oh, yes. Yeah. And yep. Uh, it sometimes I, I had it happen this morning where the letter, it was a client letter. So I don't have a HIPAA concern, but my secretary sent me the letter and it was the wrong address. Mm. The, it was the dear blank was correct, but the return address was wrong. Yep. And I was just going to say, you know, batch them and send them out. You know, these are just routine correspondence. Yep. But I thought, let me look at it. And I said, Lori, this address is on the wrong letter. And she said, oh, I don't know how that happened. Had I not, I mean, it wouldn't have been fatal, but sometimes it can be fatal. And you're talking about a HIPAA breach too, for yep. us. Yep. And credibility. I mean, that's always too, like when, you know, the credibility side, when even the letters, just the treatment letter to the general dentist, if, I mean, I hate to say it, but if the midline is three millimeters off and you say it's one millimeter off, you, 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 you lose your credibility if you keep sending letters to your colleagues with errors in them. Um, and we, I would see it so often. I would see it from oral surgery so often, the template letters coming back saying they saw the patient for eval of the eights. And I mean, there would just be, they'd have the wrong teeth listed. Yeah. I mean, just flagrant. I saw it so often from them. Mm -hmm. Yep. I mean, you'll get a pass if you do it once in a blue moon. Our right. good referrer is going to say, give you a call and say, did you really mean, right, right. you know, number tooth number four, uh, because I think you meant five, yep. you know, you'll get a save, or did you really want four extracted? There is no five, something like that. You'll get a pass on occasion, but repeatedly, you're going to lose the referrer's confidence for sure. Yep, I, I completely agree. Uh, so kind of on that note, um, let's go a little bit more into informed consent. You were touching on it a little bit. Um, can you, is there a definition of that? Is it defined by the legal system? Um, Usually what, what, it is. Uh, almost every state, if you look at public health law, uh, sometimes your Dental Practice Act, but usually in public health law, they'll have a definition of informed consent. And okay. it's similar to the standard of care. What would Standard of care is what would the reasonable doctor do under the same or similar circumstances. Informed consent is what would the reasonable person, would the reasonable patient want to know under the same or similar circumstances. Okay. Risk, benefits, alternatives, cost. Cost is, just like with standard of care, part of the informed consent formula. So that is a defined term under most states' public health law or Medical Dental Practice Act. Um, what is our responsibility when it comes to informing the patient? Is it sufficient to have the TC or treatment coordinator, which a lot of orthos and even a lot of general practitioners use, uh, to just take a standard AAO informed consent document and put it in a folder and they sign it? Uh, do you have to document that everything in that informed consent was reviewed? Do you just have to say discussed informed consent? What, what is that spectrum? Uh, it's Again, it's the ladder. It's, it's the risk management ladder. So many offices do get the carbon form the AAO has, have the patient fill it out, put it in the chart. Then there's a problem. Every patient's going to say when there's a problem, had I been informed, I wouldn't have done this. So yeah. I wasn't informed. So the best obviously is to have the doctor sit down and review the form and initial every page. Realistically, in a busy office, many doctors don't do that. Mm -hmm. So again, the ladder, the hierarchy, assigned informed consent, 
reviewed by the doctor is best. Mm -hmm. The problem with a signed informed consent form is that often they aren't signed. You give it to the parent, the parent says, let me go home and review it with my wife. They come back, they didn't give you the form back. You wrote in the chart, gave patient informed consent, went under did, uh, went over risks and benefits, comes back, day to do the banding, you forget to say, hey, did you bring that form back? Or they mm -hmm. say, you were asked them and they say, I left it home, I'll bring it next time. Right. You don't have it in the chart. Or you have it and it isn't signed, which is worse. Yep. So you should have it, I mean, the, again, you should have a staff member, you can delegate this. Yep. Have a staff member be responsible to make sure you have a form, a signed informed consent that was reviewed by the doctor, noted in the chart. It is a huge pain, it's tedious, but it's essential. Every malpractice case starts with the first cause of action, lack of informed consent. Because every patient says, if I had known this was going to happen, I wouldn't have agreed to the treatment. So every case starts with lack of informed consent. It's a wonderful affirmative defense to pull up the informed consent and say, root resorption was among the risks we talked about. Mm -hmm. Decalcification, uh, loss of the lateral bringing in the canine. Mm -hmm. Among the risks we talked about, that's what's known as an affirmative defense. It doesn't mean you won't be sued, but you have a shield against that allegation and you can prove it by showing that, now here's another problem, who signed the informed consent? Mm -hmm. It has to be a legal guardian. So patient comes in with the nanny, which is huge in Manhattan, where mm -hmm. I practice. Everybody has a nanny. You never see the mothers in these high-end practices. The nanny can't sign the informed consent. The uncle can't sign the informed consent. Even if mom writes a letter, nanny can sign anything, right? Am I correct? That doesn't no, matter? I would, I would not. I would have the informed consent go home, mm -hmm. have mom sign it. And if you don't think mom really signed it, give mom a call and say, hey, got the informed consent here, is it yours? Delegate mm -hmm. that. The doctor doesn't have to get on the phone and ask the mom, did you sign it? But mm -hmm. you've got to be careful. You know. So that's one extreme in New York where the, you only see the nannies. The other extreme is in different neighborhoods, kids come in with foster parents. Mm -hmm. They aren't authorized to sign that informed consent. Their foster okay. parents are not legal guardians, they're foster guardians. So you have to make sure it's signed by the adult who's the custodial guardian of that child. Mm -hmm. And even worse for us as people who treat children, when that kid turns 18, you've got to get the kids informed consent. Mm -hmm. You got to hand that kid a new form saying, hey, junior, up until now, your mother was okay to give informed consent. Now that you're 18, I need your informed consent to keep going. But back to your original question, it's a ladder. The safer you want to be, the higher you'll climb on that ladder. You'll get a written, signed, informed consent that the doctor goes over, puts in her chart, reviewed informed consent with parent, and if there's a specific concern, an impacted canine impinging on the lateral, mm -hmm. a second molar that you're hoping to upright but you're not sure you can, mm -hmm. go into that specific circumstance, not just the generic form that you get from the AAO or that your insurance company gives you, mm -hmm. but a little bit more detail about high-risk procedures. Yep. And um, I want to come back to the 18-year-old because you made me think of something with that in a second um, that turns 18 while they're in our care. 
but one thing I did, and, and I'm not saying this is like, this is the way to do it, that my way you know, is the way someone should do it, that it works all the time. It worked for me in almost 20 years of clinical practice, knock on wood, I never had any issue. Of course, we had parents who said I was never told that. And boy, you you end it right there. I mean, I don't even know if those cases end up going litigation. They didn't with me no, because it once you- it. It puts an end to it. it, an end right. to it. I mean, I would say to my my TC, like send her, send mom the informed consent. It's right in there. And then we would actually send a screenshot of the treatment notes that day because my TCs were trained that anything that goes specially on the informed consent as add-ons, which I'll get to, we would also know in the treatment visit for that day. Um, we also little things, little, little pearls here are anytime it was a phase one. Yes. It said in the informed consent, a second phase may be needed. My TCs always, I had a list of things that based on the appointment types and the, the, the treatment recommended that they would put in type in, and they could copy and paste them in to every treatment chart entry. And when it was a phase one, it was parents informed that a sec phase one does not prevent the need for a second phase and a second phase may be needed in the future. Um, because how many times do you hear parents say, no one ever told me they would need treatment again, right? I mean, that's all the time after a first phase, you hear that. So there well, were those little- projection there. Last week, I'm going to the dental board in New York City with an orthodontist who parents said, you never told me about the second phase. And we pulled out the treatment notes. Parents said, I don't care. So exactly that. It wasn't clear enough to the parent. Mm -hmm. And now we have a hearing before the dental board mm -hmm. on treatment of care. Just exactly that fact pattern three days ago. Yeah, I mean, we saw that often. That's why I put so many systems in place. And I would also recommend, I mean, I would tell parents, at the end of at the at the phase one debond the clinical team member that was part of their notes they had to put in dr mike explained and i did i did a debond conference i think that's a huge value from a just a practice management practice building standpoint and a legal safe practices or best practices standpoint do a five minute debond conference debrief them explain what you did what went well what didn't go as hoped or planned the plan for retention and if it was a first phase what phase one retention looks like and what what and when and how they'll be notified if a phase two is necessary and document it and i found if we did that and then at the phase one retainer checks we would indicate and say it's six months apart part of our standard notes were you would make a note explain to parent still monitoring to see if phase two is needed. And we would put in the chart at every visit, which parent was there that day. And if it wasn't a parent, it, we would put sister, we would put mom in car, called mom in car. I mean, we, we really, again, it's not perfect. I'm not saying we did it perfectly, but I found that that really helped when that parent did call that the, I didn't, I didn't even have to know. They tell my team would tell me about it after the fact, like, oh, so-and-so's mom called, they'd put it in our call log and had a question about this, but I read mom the chart notes and she's fine. You know, so um, it just, I mean, most of the time they, once they know, oh, well, I guess it's, it's documented. The other thing we did, which um, learned the hard way I had, um, been using the standard form we were digital so the form would get the aao form we would get the tc would give the folder at the consult when i'd recommend treatment with the standard printed informed consent we would have them sign a digital copy of that form when they would come in for the start it was part of their start paperwork packet they could not get authorization for the clinic to start treatment from the front end team until that document was signed what i didn't do is i wasn't putting in the specifics of the cases exactly what you just mentioned canine may resorb the lateral, right? Um, canine may need exposure. We, we will try to make space, but it may need exposure. Patient might need surgery. Patient might need extractions. We're going to try without. There's all these, you know, maybe call them 15 or 20 sort of frequent things we encounter. Uh, so what I did is in the practice management software, I built in the questionnaire, I built a question of those main points. And I wrote in the description, I wrote it out very, very 
in layman's terms, but I wrote it out very clearly and thoroughly. And then I had an other category where I could just type other notes if, if I needed to. That then auto-filled into the informed consent document that was prepared for them digitally to sign at the start. And my financial coordinator, part of her checklist was she had to read through all of the add-on items because they went at, we put, created a text box at the bottom of the AO informed consent above where they signed. And it said, these are additional notes that Dr. Mike has recommended. I want to take a moment to go through them with you. And then she would document that she reviewed the additional informed consent notes. Not perfect, but I found when I did that, I felt the, I slept a lot better at night knowing that that decreased my exposure from, as you said, that standard AAO document, which might mention or does mention root resorption, but it doesn't say that you told them that there's a good chance the child might lose their left lateral incisor. Yes. And when they do and you told them it's an, oh, well, I guess we'll need an implant in the future. When you didn't tell them it's uh, who's going to pay for this and you'll be hearing mm -hmm. from my lawyer. Yeah. Now, as, as an aside, and again, not as a banging the drum for the AAO, but there are a host of good supplemental informed consent forms on the AAO website. And you just download them, whether it's serial extraction, canine exposure, lasers, all of these things, just hand the patient that supplemental informed consent. And it is great to have, and it's free with your membership. Again, I'm not an apologist for the AAO, but I am a life member, which is great. <laughs> but they do have these forms free for the taking right on there. and. Boy, they'll save you a world of hurt if you hand the patient one of those and document that you gave it to the patient. Yeah, maybe what I can do, I'll go, um, I'll throw a link to that in the show notes so that people yes, can go check those out. that would be helpful. Out. I think um, you're, and, and you're just, your, your viewers a big service. Um, I appreciate you bringing that up because that'll prompt me to do that. So thank you. Um, before we get to the dismissing a patient side, just real quick on the 18-year-old. So when you do have someone, you start them at 17, mom comes in, mom or dad come in, and they're going over everything fine, kid drives. And now they turn 18, they come in to see you, they're 18 years, one month. And now mom calls and has questions about patient's care. Um, Problem. Yeah. yeah. I mean, look, the reality is the mother, where the kid says, um, I'm not giving you consent to proceed. The mother says, over my dead body, you want to eat tonight and you sit in that chair. <laughs> you know, that's, the, that's the reality of the situation. But the legality of the situation is you can't touch the kid. The kid says, I want these off. You can't continue to treat or you battered the kid. You've committed assault and battery because you've given him an unwanted touching. He said, don't touch me. And you do. Mm -hmm. So you have to defer to the kid and you can't. I mean, look, every parent who's got a kid in college knows that unless that kid gives you permission, you can't even ask what his grades are. Mm -hmm. You may have paid $70,000 in tuition, but you're not allowed to ask, how's he doing? Uh, how's her mental health? How's her grades? Uh, is he playing on a sport team? So the kid is 18. Unfortunately, they're autonomous, at least legally, practically, financially. They're still under your thumb. And almost always, they'll just sit there, open their mouth, and they'll give you tacit informed consent by saying, I sat in the chair, I opened my mouth. Obviously, I permitted you to adjust my braces. Okay. But technically, you can't touch the kid without that child's informed consent, which can be given, again, implied informed consent. I showed up for the appointment, I opened my mouth, and I listened to what you had to say. But that kid can bring an action against you if there's something that goes wrong saying, I didn't know. So the parents lose their right to sue. 
after the kid's 18 for something that happens after the 18th birthday, but the child who is now an adult does not. Does Do you recommend or is it recommended that when they are 18, any patient who turns 18 who's currently under our care, do we have them sign a separate informed consent at that time? You know, I would say practically, as a lawyer, yes. As somebody who is an orthodontist, I would say if there's something that you think this newly minted adult should know about her care, okay, you should say yes. You know, it's a time now where we have to decide to take out your four premolars. You know, you came in at 17. We didn't see you before. We did a trial non-extraction. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to have to take out the four premolars. I would get new informed consent. Now we need to take out your third molars. Mm -hmm. uh, if it's routine treatment, I would say, tell the kid, you're here, open your mouth, go home. Mm -hmm. but anything that you think might be a risk factor, you should get new informed consent. And if, let's say the kid is a terrible toothbrusher, new informed consent on the importance of good oral hygiene. Uh, you, you hear a click in the TM joint, you might want to get new informed consent. Anything you think you should get you in trouble, mm -hmm. you should probably get updated informed consent because informed consent is not one and done. Now that goes, Mike, where the kid is 18 or 15, if something changes during the course of treatment, the fact mm -hmm. that you got informed consent day one doesn't mean you have it day 366. Okay. You may need to give new informed consent. It's time to expose that canine. Here's new informed consent on the canine exposure. Got it's it. time to place a tad because we're not getting the distalization we wanted. Mm -hmm. Here's new informed content for that TAD. So informed consent is ongoing, not one and done. And that's something else we forget. We just tend to, patient comes in, we treat them. Patient comes in, we treat them. And it's really risky, and I think we're gonna get to that, when you are an orthodontist in a group practice or a subsequent treating orthodontist in a practice to renew the informed consent because you don't know what was said before or what is in the chart may not be applicable now. So it's an ongoing process, not a really thorough documentation day one. And that lets me coast through the next two years of treatment. Actually with that, uh, why don't we just go right into that part? What kind of, I was going to go to dismissing a patient. Um, I'll come back to the dismissing a patient side and, and let's go into that partnerships and liability and how that all works. Uh, I, how does that work? I was never in one, um, had an associate at one point but for a very brief period, but was never in a partnership myself. So I can't speak from personal experience as far as what that's like. But knowing, coaching, teaching, talking to many colleagues who have been in that position, I know there are some, you know, sometimes it works out great. And there's a lot of challenges. How does that, what does that look like? When you come, let's give a certain example. You come into a practice. You start buying in to the practice you're because as an associate i would assume well i shouldn't assume that maybe i should have you clarify as an associate what is the difference in your liability as an associate doctor in a practice versus as a partner doctor in that practice well the owner is always responsible whatever happens if your associate did it you're going to get sued as well now you can say i never was set foot in that office and you can cross claim against the associate but the owner always gets sued. The Latin term is respondeat superior. The boss is always responsible for what the employees do. The problem we have in orthodontics, unlike let's say prosthodontics or, or pediatric dentistry or endodontics is, our procedures aren't discrete 
procedures. Mm -hmm. Somebody messes up an endo, the endodontist who did it is easy to spot. You look at the chart, John did this endo on this day, he didn't fill that canal, that's on John. Mm -hmm. In ortho, unless it's something discreet like you dropped acid in the patient's eyes while you were bonding because you didn't have safety glasses on, or you wrote the extraction letter for the wrong tooth, it's hard to tell who's responsible. Root mm -hmm. resorption, you have four different associates seeing right. Who caused the root resorption? Everyone. You know, who didn't talk about the hygiene that caused this rampant decalcification? Everyone. So as an associate, you're responsible for your own actions, but you can't tell whether it's your action or your colleague's action that caused the damage in many cases. The boss is always responsible. So that's the problem as the owner. Now, I don't know if it's beyond the scope of our discussion today to talk about what the benefits of an entity are. But no, I'd be great if you want to touch on that. John um, we'll Vento a touched minutes. a little bit, but if you could you go into that a little bit, that'd be great. Uh, no, go right ahead. Now? Yeah. yeah go ahead. All right. So if you have a, a LLC or a corporation, you never escape personal liability. So one of the myths is I have an entity. I can't be sued for malpractice. They can sue my entity, but they can't sue me and go after my personal assets. Mm -hmm. And that's categorically wrong. You can never use an entity to shield yourself from malpractice. It's always personal to the doctor. Mm -hmm. What the entity does is shield you from the liability of the other doctors in your practice. So you have a, an LLC with three members of that LLC, mm -hmm. and one of them commits a tortious act of malpractice. The entity can be sued. That person can be sued for the act that he or she committed but you aren't responsible for somebody else's actions if you have an entity. If you have a general partnership, it's all in. You may have never seen the patient, but you can be sued for malpractice just as much as the person who allegedly committed it. So an entity gives you some protection if you never saw the patient. The problem we have in orthodontics is oftentimes you have a two associates and you, mm -hmm. you don't know who's seeing the patient on any given day. Everyone's right. name is on the chart. Right. That's why I often recommend if you have several people in an office, try to get the same malpractice carrier so they're not fighting in the event of a claim. They know it's the same pocket. And you may have three different lawyers defending you saying, I never really caused that root resorption. But at least when the settlement time comes, the insurance company knows it's the same pocket that you're going to dip into. Interesting. Okay. That's a great, that's a great tip. Um, so uh, thank you for going into that too. I think that's great to to uh, to bring that point up and and clarify that because I do agree. There's a lot of misunderstanding on that. Um, staying on that sort of partnership side. So let's say you come in, you're an associate, and you work in this practice for a little while, and you realize whether it's financial on the book side of things. You know they're they're not declaring all their income. Uh, these are all situations I've had friends and colleagues in uh, personally. They're not declaring all their income. They're taking some cash. Uh, or it's clinical. You notice they're doing something egregious clinically, uh, unethical, uh, or it's staff management-wise. Maybe there's an inappropriate relationship going on with the doctor and a team member. If you're an associate in this practice, right? I know it's easy to just think like, okay, you can find another practice. I'm not saying you. You know better than me in, in terms of, of how this all shakes out, and it's not an easy thing to do. But some people could hear this and say, well, just go to a different office. But you maybe just moved to this area. You might you know, have know nothing about anything else in this region. You just bought a house there. You might have a restrictive covenant. So what do you do if you're an associate doctor and you're in this practice 
And you see some of these things, some of these transgressions occurring. I mean, what, what do you write? What, what is the thing? What, what steps should they take at that point? Well, uh, you know, to go to the business side of it, doctors stealing cash, filling out insurance forms incorrectly, unless that directly involves you, there's no liability for you. You know, if that office isn't paying the payroll tax each week and you're an employee, you're not going to go down with the ship for that. Okay. If um, another associate's having a relationship with a dental assistant, that's not on you. You know, okay. if there's a claim of sexual harassment and you're the associate, that's not what is on you are treatment issues. Okay. That is a big problem. You're being asked, the classic in New York is you're being asked to authorize assistance to practice beyond the scope. And you're told in the office, this is how we do it. If you don't like it, leave. You have to decide, do I supervise the illegal practice of dentistry or do I quit? And you're yeah. right. You may have moved to town. You may have rented an apartment with a one-year lease mm -hmm. with a 15-mile restrictive covenant. Mm -hmm. That's a problem. But it is on you. And what the dental board will do if they want to go after the senior doctor, because I've had this happen repeatedly in the last few years, they will put pressure on you as an, associ an associate, as an employee of the practice. They'll say, we know you were doing these things. We know that you were authorizing assistance to practice mm -hmm. beyond the scope. We know you were um, complicit in upcoding the treatment code. Mm -hmm. You said submitted the insurance. We're going to take you down unless you rat out the boss. Mm. And it's a tough situation. Your only remedy is to quit. Yeah. And that's a problem. If you see things that are illegal going on that you may take the fall for, you have to quit because you are responsible. You can't say, I needed the job. You can't say... I was told to do it. You're the licensed dentist in the office and it's your license that is at risk. And it's a big problem for young people. They're mm -hmm. in situations that they're uncomfortable with, but their student loan payment is due. The kid needs new shoes and the rent has to be paid. Mm -hmm. And you are sometimes put into tough situations. I mean, I've been teaching at NYU for 33 years in the ortho department. And I see when these students get out, some of the situations they're in, and it's not pretty. They're in a really tough ethical dilemma. That is tough. It is really tough. Um, and I've seen it too. And and uh, it really is. It's just you feel for people in that situation. And and, and they're really, sadly, it's just, there's no there's no real good good end to any of that, sadly, a lot you of times. point it out to the employer, and they usually the employer says, look, that's my risk, not yours. Don't worry about it. This is the only way we can practice. Uh, some of the more restrictive states like New York, like Connecticut, like New Jersey, that don't allow much delegation, mm -hmm. really invite that kind of mm -hmm. uh, you know, off the reservation treatment that puts you at risk if you're the associate in the office. That's a great point. It reminds me a back problem. to our, our days on the uh, on the board fighting for the tenant yes. system. Yes. You know, yeah. we, uh, yeah. it's just such, such an uphill battle. It. Still, yeah, yeah. still it's doing just, it. Yep. Um, raises a lot more challenges. So take that mm -hmm. same scenario, if you would, as a partner. So you're an associate. Somehow you 
didn't know this was going on, or you chose to look the other way, you know, like your example with the, the documentation. Well, this was the one time I didn't take a pan, right? Well, I just, you know, I, I really didn't know this was going on because things are going well. You like to practice, you're setting your roots down in that area. You, maybe it's a one or two year associateship to buy in you, you, your partner. Now what's your liability on those same things, financial, maybe some inappropriate relations going on. Uh, and there comes a lawsuit out of that and uh, the clinical. Well, clinical, again, you you have no, if you are a partner and you never saw the patient, which mm -hmm. is unusual in ortho, mm -hmm. it's more usual in uh, prospo where one patient, one doctor or endo, yep. but you, you don't have, per, if you're a partnership, whether you're a shareholder in a professional corporation or a member of a limited liability company, if you never saw the patient, you have no malpractice exposure Okay. personal malpractice exposure the the practice could be taken down the entity yep. but you personally have none but for the other things failure to pay taxes you're not the tax partner but you don't pay the, the partnership doesn't pay taxes that's still your problem as a partner mm -hmm. harassment in the office you never really saw it the day you were there the assistant wasn't who's complaining wasn't there when you were there that's still on you as a partner mm -hmm. so you pretty much have to assume you better know your partners Mm -hmm. And you are jointly responsible for almost everything. You're not personally responsible for malpractice if you didn't see the patient. But everything else, you better know your partners, better make sure you have a good partnership agreement. You better make sure that you supervise what each partner is doing. Because a lot of times these things are compartmentalized. One person's the tax partner, mm -hmm. one person's yep. the supply partner, yep. one person's the staff and hiring partner. Yep. And you do have to meet and know what is going on because that could take the ship down. And I see it happen, you know, call yesterday, two partners just having an explosive dispute over what was going on. And they just hadn't talked to each other in a while. And now it came to a head and the partnership is over and it's going to be really ugly. How does that, before we move on to the last topic of uh, dismissing patient dismissal and refusal to treat, um, how does that, is that different with DSOs? Uh, and that sort of equity type relationship, how does that work? Uh, if something's going on in another sister practice in another state, uh, but you're all part of the same parent organization? Um, you may have an economic exposure because you hope that that DSO in three to five years, whenever it's going to flip, scores really big for you. If you left some equity, if you're either a JV equity holder or, a, or an actual equity holder, mm -hmm. that a different a sister practice could damage your return later. Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, if there's a scandal, for example, that takes down the value of the practice, mm -hmm. but you at a separate practice don't have personal liability. You don't have malpractice liability for something that went on in another practice unless you went to that practice. Okay. So your exposure is more economic than personal liability for uh, malpractice, let's say. So you, you do have a little bit of a firewall in a large DSO. If you aren't in that location may hurt you in the flip side, but it's not going to hurt you in the short term. You're not going to get sued for something that went on in a different location. But if it's in that location, same rules apply as would apply. Yeah, same, yeah. I mean, DSO, no DSO. Look, the DSO isn't practicing dentistry. You're practicing dentistry. Mm -hmm. So if there's a, a tortious act, a malpractice act in the practice, the fact that the DSO put pressure on you to do it doesn't exonerate you when it happens. That's the problem is these DSOs sometimes mm -hmm. say, we need the productivity, mm -hmm. uh, 
you know, I've seen some ortho DSLs say nobody gets extractions because it takes longer. <laughs> and you have lousy outcomes. Yeah. And you're saying they tied my hands. They said no extractions. And the dental board says, or the lawyer says, you're the doctor. The DSO is not the doctor. Either you should have quit or done the proper treatment plan. So that I'm, is concern. Young people are really, that's something that concerns them. They're often in DSOs where philosophically, it may not be what they want, yep. but they need the job. I hear that all the time. I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because that is a big thing I hear from young docs. Um, ethical concerns when they're working as an associate in these DSO arenas and what to do, you know, what to do yeah, when they're, they're telling told, you. You don't like it, quit, but don't forget about your restrictive covenant. Exactly. Yep. Yeah, and we want so. the money, the moving, the moving stipend we gave you back as well. Right. Yeah. Um, so I think the best thing on that, correct me if if you disagree or if I misstate this, but really your best option is to just vet, vet, vet as much as you can, right? Just don't so, go yeah, take I mean, don't, this whatever job at whatever place just to pay the bills and think it's fine, I'll move on. You really need to take the time to investigate this more uh, before you you sign those papers. Yeah, and if you go on some of these chat rooms or you um, keep an ear to the ground, you know there are some DSOs that are considered toxic for recent grads. They mm -hmm. don't want to get part of them. Maybe it's because the initial commitment is five years, and if you leave sooner, you have to pay to leave, or they philosophically cut corners. Mm -hmm. uh, there's You can vet, and there are support groups, chat rooms, uh, other networks that allow you to know who's good and bad. And interestingly enough, the DSOs do change their behavior when they can't get employees. When mm. word is out in the street, this is not a good place to work and they can't fill slots, they loosen up. Sometimes they loosen up the restrictive covenant. Sometimes they allow you more autonomy in treating. Mm. But the DSOs do respond to market forces. If enough people say, I'm not going there, right? they do modify their behavior. I mean, I write a lot of contracts for people working for DSOs, and I see them evolve over time. When we repeatedly say, this is an unacceptable term, and they say, we don't bend on it, and we don't take the job, eventually they say, call me back and say, we've modified that clause to your liking. Please send us some people. And to that but point, the market force. make sure you have legal representation before you go in and start signing these contracts. Oh, yeah. Uh, I mean, and I don't, don't let it be your friend's dad who no, doesn't I mean, have, you know, practices a totally different type of practices, a totally different type of law. And he looks at it as a favor, like hire someone like Eric, someone in his position, someone in a firm who understands dental practice transition and dental practice law. Right. I, yeah. I don't want to sound self-promoting. Of course I am. I'm on your podcast. <laughs> Uh, no, please. Uh, this is to help them. So, do I get a call from someone that says, "I signed it. Can you tell me what I signed?" Mm. Or, you know, I had my brother who just graduated from law school, who's a phenomenal copyright attorney. Mm -hmm. Look at this, and now I realize there are errors in it. The hardest thing to do, it's like getting a transfer case that was poorly treated. Mm -hmm. And you look at the case and think, yeah, good analogy. What yeah, what <laughs> to do with this case? Yep. And I'll get these and think you know, we've got a problem here. And it happens, you know, especially young kids don't want to spend the money. Yep. Not that senior doctors aren't cheap also, but the young kids don't have the money and they think, I don't know if I can negotiate this agreement or what's the point, or I just don't want to spend the money. How bad can it be? It's really hard to unwind it. Better not to get into it than it is to unwind it. I think to wrap up and, and encapsulate everything, 
trying to hit these points that are the hot button points and spend a little time. And just again, for everyone out there, I, obviously, I mean, Eric and I, we could dive into these for hours on end each topic. So we're not obviously, I'm sure there's things out there in each of these topics we've discussed that people might have questions on. Um, but I wanted to try to hit a group of topics that we could make sure were relevant to the majority of the viewers and listeners out there. And one big one is dismissing a patient and or refusing to treat a patient. So first question, when does the doctor-patient relationship officially begin? When you give advice in your professional capacity in any way, shape, or form. So you could be at a softball game with your kids, friends, and they say, I have a question. Mm -hmm. And they're asking you not whether they should steal home, but whether your kid should have extractions done, whether your kid should see an orthodontist. It's, it's, here, Johnny, come here, lift, 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 mom's lifting up. Yeah, his, exactly, his. right, right, exactly. And boy, that happens all the time. Can you yep. take a, you know, a quick peek? Yep. No such yep. thing as a quick peek. Yep. The minute you give advice in your professional capacity, you have formed a doctor-patient relationship. And I tell my residents this all the time because they're very proud of their education. Yes. Happy to give advice. And I tell them, be careful mm -hmm. because that advice is something you have to stand by. And if you give the wrong advice, no matter how casual the circumstance, the doctor-patient relationship has formed. Mm -hmm. So when they're coming to your office, um, someone you've never seen before, don't know, never spoken with before, and they call your, your office and they schedule a new patient examination, consultation, however you decide to book it, with or without records, they come in for that day. At what point do does the law say that you have started that relationship? The doctor uh, when they sit in your chair and you say, open your mouth. Okay. Now it doesn't mean you have to treat the patient, but it means if you saw something, you have a duty to say something. You, they have come to you in your professional capacity and you have started to render that opinion. Now you can terminate that relationship immediately by saying you need treatment, but it's not going to be in my office. Mm-hmm. But if you see something, you can't say, I'm going to quickly close the book and pretend we don't have a doctor-patient relationship. You know, this case is too hard for me, or uh, it's not something I'm comfortable treating. It's okay to say that, but it doesn't mean the doctor-patient relationship hasn't been formed. Okay. That's a really, I think, important point to emphasize is just because the doctor-patient relationship has officially formed and you've examined this patient doesn't mean you're obligated to treat that patient, correct? No, you don't have to treat anyone you don't want to treat. And you can deny treatment for any reason, dot, 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 except the wrong reason, the wrong reason being protected class, race, mm -hmm. color, creed, national origin, handicap status, the list goes on and on. And depending on your not just federal, state and local, there's a big list of protected classes. But other than that, if a patient is not a protected class, you can say, I just don't want to treat you. You know, you came in late to your appointment. Your kids are disruptive. Um, you're rude to my staff. I don't want to treat you. That is your prerogative as a doctor. The law does not compel you to treat anyone. If they are a protected class, can you still do that? Absolutely, but not okay. because of not their- because, It just has to be because yeah. of. So it's not yeah, that they're- comes okay. in, in a wheelchair and you say, oh, I think your wheelchair is going to mar my paint getting in the room, or I don't have a chair or room big enough for your Got wheelchair. It. That's not acceptable. Okay. But if somebody in a wheelchair comes in and starts yelling at your staff, I know I'm late, but I demand to be seen anyway, that's not protected class status. That's a rude patient status. 
you know, or we had mm -hmm. a situation in the clinic recently at NYU where a deaf patient is just a bad mother. Mm -hmm. And we said, we can't keep treating your child anymore. And she filed a complaint saying you discriminated against me and it was dismissed, mm -hmm. saying it just showed that we gave her translation services, bent over backwards. Mm -hmm. She just wasn't a good parent. Mm -hmm. Nothing to do with her being deaf. She played that card, but it wasn't the right card to play because we did everything right to accommodate her. She just wasn't a good patient for the office and we dismissed her. Which gets back to the documentation, documentation, documentation. Of right. right. Yes. <laughs> having that written down and make sure you document those reasons why you're choosing that so that someone who is in a protected class couldn't say it was for other reasons. That yeah. It wasn't and for. when you dismiss, you can't just say you're out. Dismissal, forming a doctor patient is really easy. Terminating the doctor patient relationship is a little harder. You, in most states, and I would, again, this goes back to your introductory statement. This is not legal advice. This is you and me talking for the benefit of the viewers. Mm -hmm. Speak to an attorney in your jurisdiction to make sure you're complying with the law. But in virtually every jurisdiction, when you dismiss a patient, you have to send certified letter or a correspondence in a way that you know. Sorry, that no, Eric, if I can for one quick second, just so I'm clear, is this if you're dismissing someone you've started treating or is this is someone you're refusing to treat? Um, refusing to treat, you could say no right off the bat. Okay. You know, refusing to treat is, I've heard about you and I don't want to treat you. Mm -hmm. okay. You know, we, you've been to five orthodontists looking for a second opinion and I know who you are and I'm not right. letting you in my office. They so come with no, what used to be, guys like you and me remember the study, Stone Model Day, they come with like four sets of models and, yes. and a stack yeah. of X-rays this high. Right, right. And, don't, <laughs> and, and you know, when you're a young orthodontist, you think you're going to be the one that's going to actually. Oh boy. Yep. Yep. I <laughs> and then after, everybody's going to be dumping their junk on you when you're new in town because they know you're hungry and you'll take it. Yep. You'll be sorry. Yep. But no, this sorry. Is, so yes, yeah, so this is for okay. Yeah, you can you can say no. Look, my office is too busy, or you want to come on Saturdays and we don't have Saturday appointments. Mm -hmm. So you can refuse to treat anyone. I don't accept your insurance. And all you have to do is just document that in the chart, right? At that yeah, point. Well, you know, if you don't even let them in the door, uh, meaning once they're in the chair and yeah, you meet them. Yeah, and, once they're in the chair, yeah. you know, it's a surgical case that you can't do. It's a distraction mm -hmm. osteogenesis case. It's mm -hmm. a an implant case that you don't do. Mm -hmm. It's a complex class three surgical. You say, I'm just, it's okay to say it's beyond my skill set, as long as mm -hmm. you're not saying it for the wrong reason. Mm -hmm. But you're not expected to be all things to all people. And the prudent doctor says, I don't think I can handle this case. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's a little trickier if the child has a handicap and you don't feel that uh, from a behavioral point of view, you can treat that child. You have to be very careful about, uh, for example, a Down syndrome or cerebral palsy kid mm -hmm. that you're not refusing to treat them because of their handicap. Mm -hmm. It has to be, this is a class three surgical case. I don't do surgical cases. I don't okay. care what your kid's disability is. I don't do these type of cases. Mm -hmm. There you have to be very careful that you're not refusing to continue to treat because of the child's handicap. And that's where documentation is critical. You know, okay. you show that I've never treated a class three surgical case and I'm not about to start now. Uh, it has nothing to do with your child's handicap. It has to do with my limitations as a practitioner. Okay. But the letter should be sent in a way that receipt is confirmed, usually return receipt requested or FedEx, UPS, stating you'll be available for an emergency basis for about 30 days. Mm -hmm that doctor-patient relationship is terminated and that your records are available. Some states permit you to charge to duplicate records. Some states don't. Mm -hmm. That's up to you. 
but you have to do four things in the letter, why you're dismissing, that you're available on an emergency basis, that they should treat, uh, seek treatment elsewhere, and your records are available. Do you have to give the names of, of other orthodontists? No, why, well, no. You should, why, why would you give the names? You, you can't stand this patient. I mean, if you don't like your colleague, give the name, but usually <laughs> what you tell them is um, call the Dental Society, call the Orthodontic Association, and get the name of other orthodontists. So you and have then, every right to terminate a disruptive patient. Three reasons. They don't behave, they don't cooperate, and they don't pay. That's an acceptable reason to dismiss a patient. You beat me to it. I was just gonna, I was just yep. gonna go there. So so they um if somebody is delinquent, you and I know there's some caveats and some gray areas, which I is what we'll kind of finish up on here, but but just from a general perspective, a general statement, you can refuse to treat or just excuse me just you can dismiss a patient from your practice for failure to pay yes the law does not presume we work for nothing mm -hmm. uh you know again mike in a in a more detailed lengthy uh seminar i might go into when you have to finish up versus when you don't mm -hmm. the aao has some guidelines on that as well but the basic rule is no no pay no show you know you and usually what happens i don't have to tell anybody listening in the kid comes in they owe money the kid comes in mother doesn't come in with them anymore because yep. the mother knows you're going to say hey can i have your credit card things deteriorate yep. um you know just it becomes a downward cycle and my opinion is it is the ethical orthodontist that terminates a patient who isn't paying sooner rather than later because it's human nature you're not getting paid you're not going to give that kid the 330 appointment. You're not going to go the distance mm -hmm. for someone who's behind as you are for someone who is up to date with their payment. And you, whether you know it or not, you're not going to give that child the best care if mom owes you 1200 bucks or if dad is saying, I'll pay you when I feel like it, but I have to go on vacation first. So uh, my argument is it's the ethical orthodontist that terminates someone who isn't a good fit for the office, doesn't behave, doesn't cooperate, <clears throat> doesn't pay. And then once you've made that decision to terminate and you've sent the letter and you've given that notice with those four items and they call and say, I'll pay, I'll pay, I'll pay, I'll, I'll, you know, I'll go ahead and pay. What's the theory from the legal perspective on do you let them come back into the practice, number one? And number two, before you do that, do you have a, I guess, kind of two and three, two is, do you have a right before you dismiss? Should you be removing the appliances? I know that's often something said and, and maybe misunderstood. And number three, what if they call back and say, I'll pay up, take the braces off? So sorry. To throw okay, let's do one, there, two, but. three. One is I'll pay, I'll pay, I'll pay. If the reason you dismiss them is lack of payment and not behavior or cooperate, behavior or cooperation, never let them back in. Okay. Because they're going to behave once or twice and you're going to go back to that cycle again. Yep. Kid's not going to brush his teeth. The mom is going to be abusive to your staff and they'll yeah. be sweet as pie one or two. So behavior cooperation, don't let them back in if that's yeah. the reason for dismissal. Failure to pay, <clears throat> that's a judgment call. But I would say if they pay up and they put a credit card on file or they pay in full, finish the case. That's mm -hmm. no problem. You've taken away the one obstacle, failure mm -hmm. to pay. And often when you finally say, I'm not working for free, they'll pay. Mm -hmm. so we've yeah. conditioned our patients not to expect us to bug them for the fee. We're going to put our head in the sand, keep treating, and then fume inwardly right. that they're behind rather yep. than say, if you don't pay, we're going to have to dismiss you. Yep. And that's when they'll pay because there's people who are ahead of us. You don't go to the grocery store or Home Depot and say, I forgot my credit card. 
but put the stuff in the basket, I'll be back next week. Right. But we allow patients to do that. Yep. So part one is if they pay in full or bring their account up to date, you're worried they're gonna fall behind again, get a credit card on file or get post-dated checks, which are perfectly legal with some caveats, ask your attorney, but you can get, if anybody still writes checks, post-dated checks. <laughs> okay, so that was one. Two was- And some people say that to do that, to write that dismissal letter in the first place, you have to take the braces off. No, you you cannot take the braces off without the patient's permission. You cannot Thank you. harm the patient. I had a doc, I had a colleague call me, had the situation, had to dismiss the patient. Everything was done by the book, letters, exactly as you said, covered for 30 days. Months later, they went and I had a colleague call me, actually his wife who was running his practice, call me and tell me that I was committing uh, malpractice and was unethical because I didn't take this patient's braces off before I dismissed them. And I'm like, you actually have it backward. Backward, <laughs> yes. If they ask, you can. Exactly, yeah. But yeah. you can't take them off that's when you get into big trouble because yep. then you have harmed the patient. They've already presumably paid for those yep. braces to be on. Yep. It is analogous to somebody going into an office to, in the old days to get a denture. Doctor puts a denture in, the patient said, I forgot my checkbook and the denture gets snatched out of the patient's mouth. Yep. So you can sue the patient for what they owe you, but you cannot harm them by taking the appliances off unless they ask you to, which is part three, mm -hmm. then you can refuse to take the appliances off. You can say, no, that is not part of our agreement to take mm -hmm. them off. Uh, I'll take them off for 500 bucks or that whatever. My next, you almost like, you, you, almost like you've off. done this cut timer too, Eric. You, you, <laughs> but, well, I mean, this is, in my legal practice, this is what I deal with every day. Yeah, every yeah. day I get a call from yep. somebody who's got a problem in their office and that's the job descriptions to put yep. out these fires. So if they ask you, you can uh, you can do it for nothing if you want if you just don't want those braces trotting around with your name you can take mm -hmm. them off mm -hmm. but i wouldn't just take them off and not polish the teeth either if you're going to okay. take them off do the right thing go and to retain dentist. no okay retainer you said yeah do you have to retain at that no, point if you, take you no, don't okay. you, you you want a retainer go to another orthodontist and get a retainer but okay. you don't have to do that now you got to have a stomach to do this a lot of dentists and orthodontists are they're just too afraid to address this with a patient. But again, mm -hmm. I submit to you, the most ethical orthodontist takes money out of the treatment equation, asked to be paid on time so that they never have to wonder, is this patient up to date or am I being taken advantage of? I think that's the most ethical thing to do is to make sure you get paid on time. So your yep. only concern is the patient's best interest, not whether mom is gonna come in with a checkbook or dad's gonna phone in the credit card. Thank you so much for clarifying that. And just so you you probably don't know this, I don't think I've ever told you this, but uh, sitting having lunch one day at during our NISO executive meetings, you and I had this conversation. We were kind of just talking a group of us about these about these things, and uh, you you were the one that helped give me the confidence and the ability to say to stand up and and realize that it was with those exact words that the ethical orthodontist is the one that does this because it's in the best interest of everybody involved and. Um, that helped me a lot. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on this forum was that I have a lot of young docs, especially listen to it, but I have docs of all ages. And, and if someone hears this again, this isn't specific legal advice for that particular person, nor was it when you and I were just chatting casually at lunch, but just hearing what the law says in general terms helped give me the confidence to then investigate it further and build the systems in my practice to be able to do that and save me a lot of time and headache and stress. Uh, and like you said, the internalization of it, I don't think we give enough credit as orthodontists because we, so many of us, I'd say the vast majority, we care, we're passionate about our patients, we're passionate about our reputation, 
But man, when people aren't paying us or they're not doing what they're supposed to do and we just let it go and keep seeing that kid, it takes a toll on us emotionally and psychologically. We get resentful. We get angry. Um, And speaking with you many years back, it kind of, I I was there and it kind of got me to say like, wait a minute, why am I getting pushed around on this? And I think one of the examples you gave um, was they, maybe you can say it and word it, but it had something to do with if the judge and the, the judge knows that if that mom goes and tells people you have a reputation and goes and starts telling everybody that, hey, Dr. DeLuke won't make you pay for their services, they understand that that is a not a desirable or practical situation and you can't conduct a business in that environment. Is that? that yes. I mean, my the, the way I put it is I want to choose my charities. I give a lot of money away. I give a lot of free services away. Mm-hmm. I'm on a lot of do-goody boards. I choose whose charity I get to uh, be the be the host of. I don't want patients to choose me, yeah. so I'm I'm happy to be a good citizen and a charitable giver, but I want to choose those charities. Yep, and I, I with hearing you say that, I remember you saying that as well, and exactly those words to me years ago, and um, I appreciate it at the time, and I appreciate you sharing it sharing it with everybody. So. If people have more questions, they want to get in touch with you, your firm, uh, I'll put it in the show notes as well, but just let us know how we could do that. Perfect. Yes. I mean, I would say email me. I don't I do not do phone calls and I don't text because texting, I can't archive legally as well. Mm-hmm. So email me and um, we'll set up a call. And if it's not something that I personally do, let's say it's something someone else in my firm is an expert in, I'll find that person for you. Awesome. And so then, always uh, happy to help and always happy to be here today, Mike, for you. I can't tell you how much I appreciate it. Um, if you want to say your email, I'll put it in the show notes too. But if people are just listening and jot it down, uh, what is the best email to reach uh, out? It's, it's first initial, last name, E. Plumas at dental practice lawyers with an S dot com. E. Plumas at dental practice lawyers dot com. Awesome. If you Google me, it pops up. Okay. Super. So, and, or Google tall, dorky guy in bow tie, and that'll pop up too. <laughs> no, well, you you are, and I'm not saying this in a patronizing way. You're you're one of the deeper thinkers and more intelligent people that that I speak to, and and really enjoyed getting to know you years past, and uh, really appreciate. I mean, you you were there in, in multiple ways just for advice for me over the years, and uh, and I know so many other people that you've helped, and um, I hope people listen to all of this and, and really can take some pearls out of it, share it with their friends and, and pass it around to get get that information out there. Because I think people make a lot of mistakes just because they don't know and they're scared to ask and they just don't even know where to begin. So you've given them a baseline of general information and then reach out to Eric with specific questions and and um, he'll be there to, uh, to help you out. So I, I appreciate it so much and appreciate your knowledge information. And uh, are there many of you that are, that are lawyers and, and uh, orthodontists? Is that, I mean, there's a small handful. There's a, there's okay. a probably three or four throughout the country and uh, we get together I and mean, we actually have cool. a part of a greater society of, dentist lawyers and we meet once a year at the American College of Legal Medicine. Wow. Yeah, uh, present papers and study these topics. So it's it's a lot of fun. It's interesting and also what was fun is being on your podcast today. I thank you so much for having me. Uh, well, thank you so much for being willing to do it and for taking the time to to share this information. I really appreciate it. All right, Mike. Talk Bye. to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, Eric. Take care. Thank you for watching this episode of the Doc Podcast. Be sure to visit theorthocoach.com to get access to ADA SERP recognized CE courses or to schedule a private one-on-one coaching session with me. And remember to join the Doc community on Facebook for more great content designed to help you succeed both personally and professionally. Just go to Facebook, search for the Doc community, 
and request admission into the group. You can also find Doc on Instagram at at the ortho coach. And always remember, you have been blessed with the ability to do amazing things.